Hey everyone, this is Suta. Just a quick note before we start this episode to say that while I know most of us are focused on the US elections, by the time you hear this episode, the US would have probably elected a new president in Joe Biden or kept the old guy. Um, either way, we all need a distraction from the US elections and the political uncertainty of the last few months. What better way than to discuss more political uncertainty this time in a different part of the world? Lebanon. Now, we recorded this episode a few weeks after the blast in Beirut that shocked Lebanon and shocked most of the world. And it's been a few months since, what, it's been two months since that blast? And But the points discussed in this episode are still salient, and I hope you enjoy those. Um, if you like what you hear, why don't you like and subscribe? We're Oxford Policy Pod, and we can be, you can find us wherever you get your podcast on with the show. Before the, the the explosion, I mean, we were dealing with with so much already. We were dealing with a trash crisis, uh, lack of accessible public services, uh, refugee crisis, um, aftermath of the different wars in the past, eighty percent hyperinflation, forty percent unemployment rate, people above fifty percent of the poverty line, and people were being held hostage in their own countries. Banks were limiting withdrawals. We were passing by ATMs every single day to see how much money we could withdraw to save our money from the banks, basically. It was surreal what we were witnessing. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. On this episode of Oxford Policy Pod, I am joined by Melanie Cremona, my colleague from Lebanon, to talk about what is happening in Lebanon at the moment and to give us insights into the blast that happened in Beirut on the 4th of August. Now, Melanie, I must apologize before we start. I have a very needy puppy at the moment that's demanding all of my attention. So if you hear barking in the background, please just excuse her. That's, that's Flora trying to get attention. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Melanie, welcome to Oxford Policy Port. How are you? Good. Thank you very much, Sita. Thank you for inviting me to this episode. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And um, so far, so good. I mean, I submitted my thesis not long ago and I'm done with the master's. So that's one thing less to worry about. Well, congratulations on Thank that. You. Well, with one thing to, less to worry about, perhaps let's get into it. Melanie, what happened in Beirut on the 4th of August? Yes. So, um, as you can see, there was a massive explosion that happened and most importantly, a crime against humanity, I think, that is very crucial to highlight. It's not an accident that happened. It's um, years and years of endemic corruption and negligence and basically just um, profit making out of chemicals, basically. Um, so I was just sitting here, you know, in my flat and scrolling through social media and I see this video that looks so surreal. It looked like a special effect, you know, and my first reaction is to think that it's really something, you know, that's not really um, real. And, and I, I just scroll, I just continue scrolling. It, it looked so surreal. And then I realized that no, all of the rest of the social media platforms I was following kept sharing this video. And I looked at it and I, it's kind of really, really scary. Um, and, you know, as a Lebanese, uh, the first reaction is to think, who is attacking us? Um, yeah. It's the beginning of a new war. Um, what's going on? And so I send a message to my family and I'm, I'm just asking if everyone's all right. And 
basically no nobody answers and just my sister who says, yeah, there has been an explosion. I'll keep you posted. And it's, it's, it, it was a shock. It was a complete shock. Um, and then a few hours later, I realized that my brother was heavily injured. Um, he was sent to the hospital. His flat was completely damaged. Um, my dad rushing to the hospital to make sure that he's okay. Um, and it's, it's very frustrating to be abroad and to not know exactly the details of everything. And you have to start checking on your friends, see who's alive, who made it. Oh yeah. So, yeah, this is what happened and, basically. And perhaps just to give to give us a bit of background, what caused what was the cause of the of the explosion? So the facts, the specific facts were unclear, but um, the consensus is that there were fireworks that caught fire next to a port where there was a lot of um, chemicals, uh, ammonium nitrate to be precise. Uh, the they say that there was two thousand seven hundred and fifty tons of ammonium nitrate. Uh, and usually um, they're not, you know, explosive. They're not um, uh, combustible. How do you say that? Um, they're not prone to explosion unless they're put in a, in a really, really bad environment, which was the case. Yeah. And uh, so basically it caught fire and it blown out, it blew out of proportion. And facts about the port was that the government knew about the storage of these toxic chemicals there for six years and for six years they did nothing about it um other facts as well is that if this was truly the amount that exploded then it would have erased the entire city off the map and it is more likely that um amounts of this um chemical were sold over the years um and yeah uh, a lot of people who tried to point it out that it was dangerous were imprisoned or were killed um, and so there's a lot of, yeah, uh, still uncertain facts about how they, they ended up there, basically. All right. And you, and you mentioned that, you know, that Lebanon has been prone to uh, endemic corruption for years. Can you perhaps tell us how about the political setup in the country? Um, who is prime minister? How is the sort of um, the politics set up? So they say that Lebanon is a democracy, um, and it's not very true. It's a hybrid regime. So there are regular electoral frauds. There's a lot of pressure on political oppositions, um, non-independent judiciaries, widespread corruption, and a system based on patronage. Um, And all this originated from um, the civil war a while ago. And it's all interlinked in the sense that we all have an identity crisis at the moment because Lebanon always struggled to to be a state in itself. It was always uh, seized by different countries for different purposes and the center of a lot of geopolitical tensions. And currently the political system is a power sharing system where the prime minister has to be from a religious community, the Shia community. The president has to be Christian and uh, members of parliament have to also be um, spread among uh, different communities in a way. So you can only apply to a certain position or run for parliament in a certain specific party if you belong to a community, not a... You can be a political party, but uh, you're still part of a a sect, a religious sect. And and, uh, this makes it very complicated because um, it's a way of coping with all the diversity within the country, but not necessarily something sustainable, as we can see, because it's not based on technocracy, but on patronage basically 
Um, now, I remember when I lived in Beirut in 2016, and, that, and, that, and that's the one thing that struck me the most was how the different religious sect played such an important role in, in the makeup of government and in, in how politics was conducted. I lived in Jaitawi, which was very surprised, very close to where the blast happened. And it was a Greek Orthodox part of, part of the city. And the, obviously the political representatives were Greek Orthodox. And that struck me as quite, um, not peculiar, but quite interesting because during the same time, I was also there when there were those protests on, um, the power and water shortages, as well as when the streets were filled with trash. And I, interacted with a group called Beirut Medinity, which ran the local elections. But what it always struck me about Lebanon is like people were politically aware, um, but not as in, as engaged back then. But I think that has changed considerably at, uh, over the last few years. Can you tell us, can you perhaps tell us how, how active young Lebanese have been getting in politics over the last couple of years? Yeah, you're touching upon something that's very important and that the protest that we've witnessed in October was the result of um, an awakening, a national awakening, but not not in, in response to the government's policy, but something that has been built up for years. Um, and I think the new generations are fed up with the idea of um, keeping Lebanon resilient and uh, accepting and romantic- romanticizing what's happening in the region uh, because it's not normal. And I think... A lot of people are craving for a sense of identity, a national identity, but also a sense of, of belonging back home. They, they want a home where they can go back to, which is very difficult for many at the moment to access. Um, and so what happened basically is that um, years after years, the young generations were told not to get engaged into politics because of the corruption, the high level of corruptions. Um, you have the same people in power for years and years, and they reproduce themselves. If they're not, um, I don't know, if the, some member of parliament uh, is suitable for a prime minister or like another position, then he's given the position, even if he's not necessarily competent in that area. And so there was a lot of a sense of helplessness in a way for a long time. And with the new government in power in October, uh, people started protesting a lot because none of the policies that it promised, uh, it implemented. And so basically, um, the tip of the iceberg was that WhatsApp tax uh, in response to the economic crisis. One way of resolving that was to censor even more speech and um, and communication. And so people couldn't take it anymore. And and it, there's a misunderstanding that this is what caused the protest, but it's it's the series and accumulation of all these problems for a while that, that led to this. And um, even Beirut Madinity, you talked about it, it ran for parliament, but also a lot of independent parties ran for parliament. We had a record number of, of women who ran for parliament as well in the past elections. Very few were elected, and one of them uh, was elected, and then last minute was just ejected from from the parliament. So we don't know what happened there. Um, There's a lot of corruption. And I think what we're witnessing is, yeah, just an awakening, but also a sense of like, fed. how do you say, like people are fed up basically with what's happening. Because I mean, this, because the blast also happened at a very precarious time for Lebanon. Uh, Again, I remember when I was there, the Syria crisis, there were many, many Syrian refugees in the country um, there was an economic crisis uh, on top of obviously what you said, endemic corruption and a political crisis um, that spanned from the, the crisis. So the blast happens at a time when the country is in an 
incredibly um, precarious position. And what has been some of the ramifications from the blast? What happened in the in the aftermath of it, politically and socially? Um, so yeah, yeah. Before the, the the explosion, I mean, we were dealing with with so much already. We were dealing with a trash crisis, uh, lack of public accessible public services, uh, refugee crisis, um, aftermath of the different wars in the past, eighty uh, percent hyperinflation, forty percent unemployment rate, people above fifty percent of the poverty line, and um, just people were being held hostage in their own countries. Banks were limiting withdrawals. I remember even wearing, when I was during the holidays um, visiting my parents, we were passing by ATMs every single day to see what, how much money we could withdraw to, to save our money from the banks, basically. It was surreal what we were witnessing. And the ramifications, I mean, is just even more anger. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's as if it, it's a genocide happening. The country is pushing its citizens to either either leave or they're killing them, basically. And citizens are expected to to rise up after all of the trauma they've gone through and keep protesting on the streets. And if they do protest, the government, you know, fights back and there's a heavy retaliation. Um, they've handed the power over to the army, which uses war weapons on its citizens um, to, to just keep them, you know, from, from protesting, from accessing whatever they need. And there's very little ramifications. Um, we've saw the president of France coming over to, to check on the situation. But we're also very skeptical about the intentions of the international community. Um, we don't know anymore where to go. I mean, uh, if we ask for help, then it's humanitarian help. But we're afraid as well that, you know, this comes with neocolonialism in a way. Um, and it's it's very difficult to talk about ramifications because we have come to a point where people are, are searching desperately for a leader, for someone to help them, to give them hope. And it's very difficult at the moment to see that. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that happened is you mentioned that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was in Beirut a day or two after the blast. And, you know, you saw the, the resignation of the government. Um, then Macron came back to Beirut, talked about a new deal and a new formation of a government with certain conditions that they're supposed to meet. Uh, how do people feel about, is, is it, is, do people feel like that there's change happening or is it just the same old, same old? Oh, same old, same old. In the beginning, I mean, it was just really after, like, the, after the explosion. So people were happy that Macron came. But a lot of them were also skeptical, including myself, because there's a lot of, you know, interest in, in the international community to be involved in, in the political situation. Lebanon is literally at the center of all the geopolitical tensions between yeah. the West and the East. And um, people want to get their hands on it because of many different reasons, uh, including petrol, gas, um, many different things. Uh, and and it's, it's becoming even more difficult to believe that um, people will come and help by goodwill, you know? Um, <laughs> So, so one thing that was discovered after uh, Macron's visit is that the army was using weapons that were sold by the French government to the Lebanese government. Um, and people were like saying, well, basically, you want to help us, then just try to stop s selling weapons to our government, basically. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult for people at the moment to really believe into something. I mean... Everyone was saying, oh, well, you've got what you wanted. The government resigned, but not really because the parliament hasn't dissolved yet. 
And it's something we're used to. I mean, we've had so many different governments. We had, you know, absence of leadership for so long. And we don't have any emergent independent party that is strong enough to to appeal to the people. And you have also the still behavioral changes that are not enacted still. A lot of tensions between different, you know, civil society and parties and a lot of yeah different problems that are happening. So right now we 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 don't really know where to go next, basically. Yeah, you know, I mean, but one of the things that, that was always romanticized and you touched upon it at the start was a sense of resilience. You know, um, the Lebanese are such a resilient people. Um, there was a war, you know, um, people listened to Fairuz and they were resilient against all the adverse, um, you know, consequences of the war or the effects of everything that's happened in the country. And, and, Short of trying to ask you whether whether the country is still resilient, I actually want to ask you: Do you think there is hope for change? I mean, at this point, where where does the country go from here? I think at the moment, um, in the current state, it's very, very, very difficult for the people to to have hope, and it's a very, very sad situation. A lot of my friends are leaving. Um, Many of them do not have a choice much, and they have to remain. Um, But it's not an easy situation mainly because there's absence of leadership. Um, And even if there are going to be elections, they're not going to be free and fair. And without any, you know, powerful leadership emerging, um, it's very difficult to foresee any change in, in the, yeah, in the short run, at least. But, sorry. No, sorry. I was just going to ask, and where do you, how do you think, how do you think that Lebanese people can leverage the international um, political coverage um that's 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 opening up and to apply pressure on the government what what levers do you think people can use now to really try and push those reforms that are needed i think what they're expecting from the international community is some kind of you know political pressure in the sense that they can enact um sanctions uh, and specifically sanctions targeted at politicians through seizing their assets abroad um, through ensuring they do not provide any financial help to the government directly, but not necessarily getting their hands involved into the politics, because that is also very risky, you know. So yeah. um, I think what we're expecting is some kind of um, help and support in ensuring that the corruption will not continue. And I know that just recently, um, after a conversation with Macron, I know that one of the political uh, leaders said he would not participate in the next government that would be formed. Um, so there's some kind of listening, but at the same time, it has to be approached with a lot of um, cautious optimism in a way. Um, yeah. And the resilience, I mean, just to comment on that, I think it's not necessarily resilience over their years. It's, I think it's just um, normalizing the situation and not having a choice much because people don't have the luxury as well to all go on the streets and do something. Lives are being taken away. Melanie, perhaps in way of... Sorry, I was... Perhaps in way of closing, for anyone who wishes to support the humanitarian response on the ground... um, how do how do people get involved? So there are several websites to check. Um, the one I recommend would be uh, lebanoncrisis.card.co, card with two R, and it gives a very comprehensive list of different organizations to support, mainly those who support the most vulnerable populations. I think it's also important that the media keeps an eye on Lebanon and talks a lot about it, just to make sure that the pressure is applied and people monitor the situation. So what's needed most is humanitarian relief and aid and um, a lot of 
media attention at the moment. And a list of those websites will be in the show notes to this episode. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us here on Oxford Policy Pod. Thank you. Well, that's all from Oxford Policy Pod. If you liked what you heard on this episode, why don't you subscribe? You can find us anywhere where you find your podcast on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts. Like and subscribe. From me, Sutakavari, goodbye.